Virginia scores a controversial win that moves it closer to an ACC regular season title, while Virginia Tech may be on the outside looking in when it comes time for NCAA postseason bids. This week on Teal and Bar. Welcome to episode 103 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC Sports Podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me here as always, my co-host, the 14-time Sports Writer of the Year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, Mr. David Teal. David, how are you? Um, well, Mike, did you survive a weekend of officiating controversies in college basketball in the NFL? Could it have been more thematic going from UVA Duke to the Super Bowl? And yeah, I, I prefer my big games without the tinge of controversy. Amen, bro. Right? I mean, the, the games are good enough as is. These players are compelling enough. The storylines, especially, uh, you know, big games. And, and UVA Duke was a big game and certainly... They don't come much bigger than the Super Bowl. Uh, how big is the Super Bowl in, in the Teal household? Do you guys uh, do anything big, or, or is it an afterthought? What, what is Super Bowl Sunday at, at your house like? Uh, at our house, it's empty because we go over to my brother-in-law's crib, and uh, he has the family and some friends over, and we do it up pretty well. So is, is he a cook? Is he the food guy? Do you bring stuff in? Does everybody bring a dish? You know, I always... I always want to know the food stuff. Yeah, everybody brings stuff. And uh, and how is the food spread? Very good. The food here is kind of the, the focal point because between uh, two kids who don't really get that into the Super Bowl and uh, a wife who's trying to do her best to take care of those two kids so I can enjoy the Super Bowl, it, it kind of sometimes feels like um, – a random Wednesday night where I'm rewatching a game for work purposes. Like I'm sitting there alone, huddled up trying to watch and uh, trying to avoid the distractions. But uh, we did eat well. We did the standard, you know, pigs and blankets. We did a couple new things this year, including we did uh, bang, bang shrimp, which came out really, really good. Except that my son who's three, he, he loves to help cook. He loves to get involved in the kitchen, which is great. And uh, you got to take the shrimp and you're dipping them in uh, cornstarch and flour and, and getting them kind of coated before you fry them. And he would dip one and then he'd get a little of that cornstarch and flour on his fingers and he'd climb down from his learning tower and go wash his hands. And then he'd come back. And I finally told him, I said, hey, buddy, I'm like, we got four dozen shrimp here and we cannot have you washing your hands 48 times. We, no. we just got to roll with this. So, um, And then the joke was on me because then he decided he would just wipe his hands on his pajamas. Uh, so that, that, that backfired a little. But David, I, I know there's controversy at the end, but I thought that was a wildly entertaining Super Bowl. Oh, it absolutely was. You, you just, you know, taking a knee to set up for a chip shot field goal. Oh, you know, I just, you know, could the Eagles have gotten that stop, forced a field goal attempt and, uh, you know, with, with more time left. So so Jalen Hurts would have had a shot. It just would have been more dramatic. It can always be better, but we've seen so many games that are snooze fests. This was not, right? This oh, was right. No. You know, it's funny. Both teams scored really quickly and, and right from the start. This looked like it was going to be uh, a fun game to watch. Yeah, and it, and it absolutely was. And, you know, some you know big plays, big catches, Hurts running the ball. Mahomes with that late scramble was ridiculous. Uh, and he's, 
you know, playing with what he's been dealing with, with that high ankle sprain, you know, he collected his second MVP uh, last week. You know, it, 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 it's not a, a revelation that he'll be in Canton uh, when it's all said and done. No, I, and he was, I mean, he is always fun to watch, but to know that he was playing through that high ankle sprain, to see him still take off and run for that big first down in the fourth quarter, some of the other right. plays he made, uh, keeping plays alive behind the line of scrimmage. Travis Kelsey, to me, is just a ton of fun to watch. Um, I feel about him probably the exact opposite as defensive coordinators feel, right? Like, yeah. he's this nightmare that you can't cover it. I'm like, I love it. I love to see all the different ways that teams kind of fail in, in covering him. Um uh, and, you know, I've always had, I don't know why, but I've always kind of had a soft spot for Andy Reid. Uh, sure. Right? And he's just so likable. And then to do it against the Eagles, who who obviously mm-hmm. cut his time there short. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the Super Bowl. Now, I did not get to watch the halftime show. That was when I was putting my son to bed. You know, I didn't either. So neither of us are going to be able to, to, to weigh in here. Um, but I will say, regardless of... of what you thought of the show, the fact that we find out later that Rihanna's pregnant, uh, right? I mean, neither you or I have ever, nor ever will be pregnant, but I am aware of how much energy it saps from you. Uh, so that was pretty remarkable. Mahomes playing on the bad ankle and Rihanna doing the uh, halftime show pregnant. Those are some pretty, uh, gutsy performances, I thought. No doubt. And I I did read a review, Mike, in the Washington post today that just raved, about the, the halftime show and everything about it. And I've heard it compared to the gold standard of halftime shows, and that would be Prince in the pouring rain in Miami. Yeah, I, I'll, have, I'll have to watch it, but I, I would have a hard time imagining it. It equals that. But it's funny that you say that because I also had heard uh, Chris Stapleton's anthem, which was excellent, uh, yes. and, and that I did get to watch. We watched that part as a whole family, and I, I heard that put up there with – uh, Whitney Houston, who kind of is the, is the gold standard there. And um, that one made sense to me. I, th- I thought that was really, really good. And the game was entertaining. Commercials, David, I, I didn't, I, again, I used the commercial time for, for other things besides mm-hmm. watching television. Did you take in any of the commercials and did they add anything to Super Bowl Sunday? No, I, 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 I did see a commercial, though. For, it was an intriguing movie about, about Nike and Jordan. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, well, the, you know, the, the storyline I'm kind of buying, but, you know, is, is Matt Damon really going to be Sonny Vaccaro? And, um, cause I, you know, I've been around Sonny Vaccaro a little bit and I've talked to him several times. Matt Damon does not remind me. No, it would not have been my first guess of casting, but, um, yeah, it's funny the two that stood out to me were both movie commercials that one uh for the obvious tie into what we do and um and then the new indiana jones movie which is going to star with all due respect the old indiana jones harrison ford who i mean is outstanding and he's an an icon but um i saw the last last indiana jones movie and i thought they were setting up to, to pass the torch and i guess that that didn't happen. So, uh, hey, Harrison Ford, like I said, hey, if you can win the Super Bowl on one leg, if you can put on a halftime show pregnant, <laughs> and if you can kick butt as an action star at whatever age Harrison Ford is now, uh, more power to you and uh, kudos to all three of them. But, yeah, I, I'm with you. I thought that was a, a very enjoyable game production uh, Super Bowl Sunday. 
And maybe most importantly, David, I thought it was 24 hours that I didn't spend exclusively thinking about the foul, no foul call at the end of the Virginia Duke game, which while it is fascinating and we're going to get into it right now, I needed a break from. I did too. and But my full disclosure, I spent a good part of the second half of the Super Bowl writing about Duke, Virginia, what I learned from the national coordinator of officials and just having it ready to post online this morning. Um, yeah, it's been quite a, you know, we're, we're on 48 hours now since that game ended. And and my my notifications on Twitter still people are arguing and you know how it is because you're tagged in it and you get caught in the crossfire and it's just oh, it, oh my gosh it's it's ugly and uh, if you if you haven't read the article first up that's still on Richmond.com and, and David kind of breaks down some of what we're about to talk about here but uh, end of the Virginia Duke game the game is tied fifty eight fifty eight there's what one point two seconds to play. Uh, Duke inbounds the ball. They get it to their star freshman, Kyle Filipowski, who had not scored in the game. Filipowski makes a move uh, against Ryan Dunn, gets to the the baseline, uh, gets to the rim where he is met by Reese Beekman. Reese Beekman makes what I would say 80% of people at this point believe was a a clean block uh, on his attempt at the rim. Then there is some contact with Beekman uh, in the follow through. As Filipowski comes down, the referee blows a whistle, calls a foul. The hand goes up. They go to the monitors. They review it. They say there's no foul because it was Ryan Dunn making contact with Filipowski, but after time had expired. David, since then, (laughs) fast forward, the game, which we'll get into in more detail in a moment, goes to overtime. Virginia wins in overtime. 1130 at night, as I'm sitting in a local establishment having a late dinner, uh, the ACC puts out a statement saying that that was incorrect, that because the play and the shot attempt started before the clock expired, the foul should have been enforced. Yes. Duke should have had two free throws and a chance to win the game and avoid overtime. And it has been the topic that has dominated certainly ACC circles. Uh, and I think if not for the Super Bowl, might have dominated uh, national talk as well. No question. And Mike, I I have several thoughts, as I knew you do. First of all, how many times during that game did you and I remark to one another, wow, how is that not a foul? I mean, it was physical. So for them to blow the whistle on that play at the end was somewhat surprising. Just, yes, there, there's contact. I, I, I get that. But man, there was a whole lot more contact during that game that went on call. That's number one. Number two, and this is a point that Virginia fans have made relentlessly. Did Tyrese Proctor get the ball inbounded in time? It's a fine question to ask and one you can debate time in memoriam. But that's not the problem here, and nor is Tim Clockerty's foul call. That's not why the ACC released a statement. Why the ACC released a statement is because the referees did not know the rule. That's a big problem. And so the ACC wanted to concede that, and I applaud them for it. 
when when your refs get the rule wrong, we're, we're not talking about a judgment call, foul or no foul, block charge. Did he drag his pivot foot? You know, any of that stuff that we are used to seeing routinely. This was something far different. My Twitter mentions were full of, oh, the ACC only put out a statement because it's Duke. And, oh, Mike Krzyzewski probably still has them on speed dial. And, and, mm-hmm. and No, it's it was a totally different scenario. It was the, as they said, adjudication of the rules. Yes. Uh, now, big picture, I'm watching that. I, I don't really see a lot of contact with Dunn, who they said the foul was on, uh, and Filipowski. Oh. It, it, it comes <laughs> very late after the shot attempt. Agreed. Um, I think it would have been a travesty to whistle that foul and have the game end that way. Uh, but to your point, that's not where the controversy, like, and everybody gets wrapped up in, well, they shouldn't have called that foul. I would agree. I, I thought that was a ticky tack touch foul, you know, at the end of a, a shot that had already been blocked. I agree with all of that. Did he get it in, in, in five seconds or five and a half? You know, you watch it, and, and I can see people's gripe. I, I really do. You don't know when the official starts counting. There's a lot of leeway there in terms of it's supposed to be when the official hands the ball hands to the, the inbounder and he has possession, the count starts. Now, mm-hmm. if you're the official and you're handing someone a ball, are you simultaneously starting the count? Is there a half a second pause? And if there's a half a second pause, is that the difference? All of these things are, are intriguing and fun to talk about. None of it has to do with the controversy. And this is my one. And I said this to John Shire this morning, and I know he, um, I don't know that he loved the question, but to me, the only mistake that he made was letting his team go out there for the overtime without an explanation. Cause Tony Bennett and John Shire both came in and told us they didn't really get an explanation. And if I'm John Shire and yes. you've called a foul and you've called a foul that I, my team should have a chance to win the game. My team isn't coming on the floor until you explain to me where that foul went. Right. That's the only thing. And it's the only thing that I think a more seasoned, more veteran coach, I think Mike Krzyzewski and everybody loves to bring this up, but I think he would have demanded an explanation. And maybe in that explanation, the officials would realize their error or maybe not. And maybe we're in the same exact situation. It was the one thing from Shire's point of view that I would have liked to see him do differently there is to say, he raised his hand. He called a foul. Where did that foul go? Um, and the explanation not being given to them at the time is part of what blew this controversy up. It's true. And Mike, you know what else the officials didn't do, which they often do, is they didn't go to the television crew and explain it to them. Now, that doesn't help us up in the press perch, except that we can read on Twitter whatever the referees have told the TV crew. And that would have been helpful. And not to get too inside baseball with this, but I kind of blame myself for for some of the confusion because my father always told me never assume. (laughs) But I did. And after the game, and and I think we all did, we assumed that Tony Bennett and John Shire would be able to enlighten us as to what transpired at the end of regulation because we were confused when they came in and expressed confusion that's when i requested to be the pool reporter to go talk to the officials eric bacher the sports media relations director for virginia basketball very kindly took me down there but a lot of time had transpired it's not like the referees ran out 
but they were gone, and I wasn't surprised. And the fact of the matter is, if they had given me a statement, they still wouldn't have known the rule. They, the only thing they would have told me that would have enlightened us was that the foul was not on Reese Beekman, that it was called on Ryan Dunn. That would have helped, but it still wouldn't have changed the fact that they didn't know the rule. In fact, for them, it would have looked worse because there would have been a quote, an official response where they were explaining that their view of the rule, which would have been then announced as wrong. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there's a bunch of things in terms of uh, the communication. It's a great point about the television, not coming over and talking to TV. Mm -hmm. Kind of smacks you in the face of there was confusion on their part too. Yes. So it wasn't a very confident this is the rule and it turns out you were wrong. It was more, it feels like a, I'm not quite sure what the rule is here. And part of it being, and, and this is my opinion, the rule's a little bit dumb in that there, there should sort of be an exemption there for a third person, right? You go to the rim and somebody goes up and fouls you, regardless of what time they foul you, if the shot is off, you know, if you're talking about a follow through on a three, it's the same thing. That makes sense to me. But the idea that you could come down from the attempt and be bumped by somebody, uh, I think they need to maybe look at that rule. But it's also not my job to know that rule. Uh, and in that level of minutia, it's probably not Reese Beekman or Kyle Filipowski's job to know that rule. Of course not. But you know whose job it is? is <laughs> the yes. three guys who didn't have a clue. And, and that is why we have all of this discussion. Yes. And one other thing that Virginia fans were 1,000% correct to point out is that the case book study that the ACC cited in its release explaining all this starts with a phrase that says, in games without a courtside monitor available. That was a red flag to Virginia fans. And this is why I reached out to the NCAA national coordinator, Chris Rastatter. As it listed all, clearly there was a monitor available because they used it. Right. But Rastatter, through NCAA spokesman David Warlock, said, no, that, that rule, that case study applies to every game whether there is replay available or not. So in that regard, the case book is flawed and mm-hmm. needs to be edited to give more clarity. You know what else needed to be edited? That statement before the ACC put it out. Because when, when we read it, the two thoughts I had were, one, um, that's confusing. And two, this may make things worse instead of instead of better. Um I think when you're, and I understand, you know, you get into this sometimes, it's almost like legalese, right? You're, you're trying to read the fine print. I think what a statement from a conference, when something like that happens, it needs to be put into everyday terms because yeah. it's the everyday fans that you're trying to reach, right? It's the everyday fans that are upset. It's the everyday fans that have a question and you're trying to reach them. And yes, you, you reach them through the media, right? You reach them from guys like, like you and I, and, and, and that's how you get the message out. But if that's your audience... I don't know that seven paragraphs of your rules in your case study is the way to do it. I, I think you need to break it down into layman's terms. Here's the rule. Here's what our officials saw happen. Here's the way they called it. Here's why it's wrong. Um, it sort of was just a- almost fanning the flames to say, this is wrong. And, and here's a little section of the rules that if you delve into it, you can kind of figure out why it's wrong. Um, 
So I don't know that that helped, and not just because it interrupted my late dinner. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that helped bring uh, any clarity. Now, Virginia's 69-62 overtime win, which was the biggest part of, of this situation, uh, that did bring some more clarity, I think, towards the race for the ACC regular season title. It does feel like Virginia's in the driver's seat. Yes, they've got that head-to-head loss to Pittsburgh that, depending how things shake out, can come into play. Uh, and Dave, the head-to-head loss to Miami. Which could still come into play. And a game yes. still with Clemson, although they seem to be uh, falling off the rails a little bit here late. Uh, but, David, overall, I-, I thought it was a very high-level basketball game. Yes. Um, I hate that this controversy kind of overshadowed that. But I will say this. I thought both teams had two things that you could stick on their name Saturday that would have told me they have no chance to win. And obviously, when two teams play, somebody's got to win. <laughs> Duke commits 22 turnovers, yep. and they get zero points from Filipowski, who's been their best and most consistent player. Yep. Those two things, you tell me they're happening. I'm t- Okay, Duke loses, no doubt. But on the flip side, mm-hmm. Virginia goes 9 for 22 at the free throw line. So you think about that, and then 4 for 14 from three-point range. Those two things together tell me Virginia can't win. Now, like I said, you put two teams on the floor, one of them's got to win. What did you think of of this basketball game before that final second of regulation where things got funky? It was very entertaining, the the, the flaws you, you, you noted aside. And by the way, that 9 for 22 from the line was bumped up by overtime. In regulation, Mike, they were 3 for 12. Brutal. I mean, it it was, and it wasn't like Francisco Caffaro was, or Jack Salt had come out of retirement to shoot free throws. I mean, this was Vanderplas going five for 11. This was Kihei Clark going one for three. Armand Franklin, who's shooting save the day, ironically, from the field, goes two for five. Now, Isaac McNeely missed one. You know, he might be the best shooter on the team. So it, it was it was crazy, uh, but the fact that they found a way and defensively on on Filipowski, they were just they were superb, and that's the second game of last week that they were that way with an opposing big because as as you chronicled well, they absolutely suffocated DJ Burns of NC State. That was, to me, the story of the week. And I know, obviously, the controversy is the story of the week. But the fact that they were able to play their post-trap defense at that high a level, and and two different ways, right? Because with DJ Burns, they really pushed him out away from the paint, made him catch the ball outside, and then immediately flashed that double so it was hard for him to pass. Burns ended up picking at least two, I think, offensive fouls just trying to get himself to the rim where he could score and picked up two of his fouls that way and then against duke and part of the duke game was fascinating you know matchups because of foul trouble and Jaden gardner ended up with four ben vanderplas ended up with four uh caden shedrick had four his third one ridiculous uh playing with two fouls and kind of just you know doing the the reaching out and committing a dumb foul uh, mm-hmm. but all of that forced them to ryan dunn ended up playing uh big minutes, important defensive minutes. Uh, it was really interesting to see that all four of those guys in some fashion were pretty effective when called upon. No question. And Mike, how about this combined stat line? 
for DJ Burns and Kyle Filipowski against UVA last week? Eight points, 11 turnovers. Yeah. That, my friend, is defense. Yeah, five for Filipowski. And, and it's funny, you know, because people were commenting that they looked like such bad turnovers, a lot of them, right? Lazy passes across the middle, but it was nowhere to go with the ball and no sight lines because they were getting that post trap on. They were they were in those lanes and um, it, it was what the pack line is supposed to do, right? Make that, that middle area, that paint area, a no-fly zone, whether it's driving the ball, passing the ball, uh, pulling up, and that's what exactly what they did. So um, huge win for Virginia, circumstances notwithstanding. Um, it goes in as a W. It's going to be a good win on their resume because I don't think Duke's going anywhere. I think that's a good Duke team. Uh, I thought Tyrese Proctor looks like he's really figuring it out here in, in the back half of the season. Uh, so, yeah, I, I came away uh, very impressed with Virginia and feeling like their shot at an ACC's title um, was only enhanced, right, with what I saw, not just because they won, but the level of defense they played uh, on Saturday. Absolutely. And let's not as good as Jeremy Roach was for Duke on Saturday, especially early to get him fouled out. Mm-hmm. was huge and then how about Derek Whitehead you know he's been he's been on the pine for 2 weeks because of that left leg injury he sustained against Virginia Tech in Blacksburg and he came out and those those two corner threes he hit on on back-to-back possessions that that kind of brought them closer and he ends up with 10 points in 25 minutes i agree with you i think duke's going to stick around and it would not break my heart to see these two teams share a court in Greensboro next month. Yeah, it would be a, a very different because Tony Bennett credited the JPJ crowd. Right, It was a lively atmosphere. It was a mm-hmm. good crowd, good atmosphere there. Uh, I imagine the tables would be a little turned in Greensboro. I would imagine they'll be uh, a little more Blue Devil faithful in the building if they get that matchup. Well, it depends on how many Carolina people are in the stands. <laughs> that's, that's right. It's kind of like the the controversy here with the call. I've it's Virginia fans on one side and Duke and Virginia Tech fans yes. on the other. That's been my Twitter feed. And you're right. You you get down into Greensboro and uh, you might face Duke or Carolina, but don't worry because you've got the other fans and maybe some NC State fans too uh, on your side. So. Uh, no, a lot of basketball left, obviously, but uh, I think we both feel really good about where this Virginia team right now is positioned. Yes, and and Mike, let let's not lose sight of the fact, and I I, I tried to mention this, and it it probably got lost in, in the controversy on Saturday, but this is the twelfth that that victory on Saturday. Virginia's eleventh of the season in the ACC, which means the worst they can do is 11-9, and nine, clinched a 12th consecutive winning ACC record for Tony Bennett's program. And that is the third longest streak of all time behind Dean Smith and Carolina with an just unimaginable 33 and Duke and Mike Krzyzewski with 13. I mean, what... Bennett has built. I mean, we all know it, but it, it it just serves as a reminder of what he and his staff and his players have accomplished. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, it really is quite remarkable. The consistency. Uh, now they enter a stretch 
huh, that mm-hmm. I will say respectfully yes. is blah, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> you got Louisville, Notre Dame, and Boston College. Louisville and Boston College on the road, Notre Dame at home. All three of those teams are underwhelming. Uh, Louisville's been an, an absolute train wreck, although they seem to be getting it together here a, a little bit more uh, down the stretch, which is an improvement. Notre Dame doesn't play any defense. No. Uh, certainly they can test you a little offensively. Boston College just felt like when they got Quinton Post back that they were maybe on the verge of, of taking it up a notch. That hasn't really been the case. I asked Tony Bennett about this today. This feels like a stretch where you need to put on your tie, put on your suit, go to work, be very businesslike because this is not an exciting stretch from an opponent's stand of view. Here's what Tony Bennett had to say. Yeah, um, I remember when we were preparing for Boston College, I watched the Louisville game and I and I told our staff, I said, Louisville's close. I said, they they have ability and they're, they're playing teams tough. And uh, so that was a while ago. And they've, you know, continued on in that. And they just, they have, you know, guys that are playing well, they're athletic, and they're hungry to, to get wins. And they're right in there with some good teams. You see that. So um, they just have improved. And, you know, they, they got a win in the ACC, and they're, they're battling in, in some close games. So our league is who plays best. You have to outplay the other opponent, and, and that's how it is. And, again, records are insignificant, and they, um, they seem like they are finding their way. To go into Miami and play them that close and is impressive to do. You know, obviously, uh, in some of those other games is good. So we know we'll have to be ready, and it's, it's an opportunity. As we're getting down to the end, you just it's, – it's who plays well. I think this league is, is taking a step in depth and quality, and I know on the record book it doesn't look like it, but uh, they're very capable, and – They'll, I'm sure, continue to improve as the years go on. So, yeah, David, uh, Louisville, Notre Dame, Boston College, we're not champing at the bit to, to watch any of those teams play. Uh, <laughs> but this is an important stretch, right, for Virginia basketball. If they want to win their sixth regular season ACC title in the last 10 years, it is. You know, you, you want to get these three, then you're sitting there with, with, with 14, you know, you're 14 and three as opposed to 11 and three. Uh, with, with with just the the three games remaining, including the regular season finale at home against Louisville, which you have to think you're going to win. Um, but you know the the other two, including that trip to Chapel Hill, then it gets a little dicier. Yeah, I thought it was almost unimaginable when Kihei Clark lost his senior day last year on that buzzer beater by Florida State. Uh, it <laughs> would be even more unimaginable for him to lose two senior days in a row. Yes. And one to this Louisville team, which just has, as, as we said, just not been a- any good this season. Now, closer to Louisville in the standings than Virginia, uh, surprisingly to both of us, is Virginia Tech. Mm-hmm. And Virginia Tech, since we last podcasted, suffered a loss Ooh. that may, right, David, have have taken them out of contention uh, for an appearance in the NCAA tournament. I'm talking about a home loss to Boston College, who you just heard us cutting down 30 seconds ago. Uh, they, they lost that game 82-76 in Blacksburg. Yes, they bounced back and, and got by uh, a not very good Notre Dame team. They follow that up next with Georgia Tech this week, also a struggling team. But but David, that that BC loss is, is going to be kind of the albatross hanging on their neck, won't it? It very well could. And Mike, it's not just one BC loss. <laughs> it's two. Granted, this one was at home, so it's even more damaging in the eyes of the committee and perhaps in the eyes of, of the Hokies. But they, 
BC's one dude is Quentin Post. And he is a seven-footer with skills. We saw it at JPJ earlier this season. He can go out and shoot it beyond the arc. He's got good footwork, and he's ambidextrous in, in the post. And he's he's wide. He's not a skinny, scrawny seven-foot. He is big and wide and strong. You know, He's the one that gives you – and Virginia Tech couldn't handle him. And then – BC got hot from deep because they were paying so much attention to Quentin Post on the interior. And Grant Basile had a great week, back-to-back 33-point games. First Hokie since Bryant Matthews two decades ago to go for 30-plus in consecutive outings. But you mentioned the Georgia Tech game, must-have, can't lose. And then the three games... That three-game stretch of Pitt at home, Miami at home, and at Duke that will almost certainly determine whether Virginia Tech has any kind of at-large NCAA hope. Yeah, Mike Young's team just is finishing up here with Georgia Tech. It's meh stretch like we talked about with UVA Mm -hmm. and going into that that really brutal stretch. But again, it is the kind of stretch that can also save your season. Right. I mean, if they if they run the table here, win all these games, we have a totally different outlook for them. Uh, you know, wins over Pittsburgh, Miami, and Duke with with the Duke one being on the road, that would change their resume. And and they're not in bad shape as far as their net ranking. Yeah, the metrics like them. They do. So I would argue if you're Virginia Tech, you almost wish there were a couple more big games left on the schedule, <laughs> right. right? And maybe that's what comes into play in Greensboro. Or hey, or, or maybe you go to Greensboro and you've got to pull the miracle again like they did uh, in Brooklyn, running the table and, and, and winning there. Uh, but I think you and I both feel like that would be uh, even harder to do this time around. It would be. And and, and Mike, you know, d- depending on how it all plays out, it could be that they have to win five and not just four. You know, if, if, if they don't get out of that bottom six, they're playing Tuesday in Greensboro. And that just makes it exponentially more difficult uh, to, to, to win the conference tournament. I think the only team to ever do that, was it UConn in the Big East? Who was it in the Big East who won five in five days? I believe it was Connecticut. In- it was it was an amazing run. Yeah, just one of those, um, you know, one of those magical postseasons. Like they, there should be thirty for thirties about. Uh, but yeah, do I expect that from the Hokies? Uh, no, probably not. Now, David, has there been an update on Darius Maddox, who they have been without? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's almost to the point where people like are, are forgetting to ask, but you know, yeah. they're playing without Darius Maddox. Rodney Rice, the freshman who came back for one game then suffered the, the finger injury, uh, is done for the year. So this isn't a very deep team either, and that plays into having a big run and certainly plays into playing all those consecutive days in Greensboro. It does, and you know, they've, they've got a little bit of depth. I mean, Lynn Kidd gives them a, a little bit of juice off the bench, in in the front court, um, but yeah, there, there, there's there's not a whole lot of bench power there, uh, and they they do they they suffer defensively at times. Hunter Couture, you know, as as, as you asked Mike Young today to to comment about how how good and valuable he is on the defensive end, and he absolutely is. 
but he needs some help and he's not getting enough of it. No doubt. And uh, as I rack my brain, I think it was also Kemba Walker, right? Wasn't Kemba Walker the guard on that UConn team that yeah. just got absolutely on fire and, and took them through Um fun tournament. But uh, David, I want to ask you, and, and obviously there is still plenty of basketball to play. We don't know who's going to win the regular season. We don't know if teams like Clemson that, that have fallen off here, Clemson and Wake, are, are they going to continue to struggle? Uh, Pitt and Miami, are they going to continue to get it done? Pitt's won five in a row. Miami's won four in a row. Um, we both still feel like Virginia is a team that's going to finish atop the standings. Who would be your ACC coach of the year if the season ended today? Jeff K. Pittsburgh coach, 18 and 7, 11 and 3 in the league, uh, tied with Virginia atop the standings, although, as we mentioned earlier, they own the head to head. What is it about what they've done at Pittsburgh that kind of separates him? Well, number one, they've they've turned it around, uh, and you know they're they're looking to get into the NCAA tournament. I don't know when the last time it's been, but it has been a while since Jamie Dixon was there and had the Panthers in the bracket, and he's he's done it through the portal, and he's done it the pit way. It is a tough physical. Team, I think it was Mike Young who said today they remind me, quoting Mike, of the old pit teams. You know, the kind you associated with Jamie Dixon and before him Ben Howland when they just really had it going and they were March staples and often in in the Sweet Sixteen and they would sooner bruise you than go around you. And that's the the way this group is. Um, You know, if you'd asked me this question a week and a half ago, I might have said Brad Brownell. But as you mentioned, you know, they're they're on a three-game losing streak right now, and and the metrics do not like Clemson um, because of their non-conference schedule and, and the losses to South Carolina and Loyola of Chicago. The Tigers need to get well in a hurry. 2016, I believe, would be Pittsburgh's last appearance in the okay. NCAA tournament. I'm with you uh, on Cable, but the other guy that, that I am intrigued by, and there's, like I said, still basketball to play. His team's 20-6, and six, and that's Kevin Keats at NC mm-hmm. State. Yeah. Well, I think we came into the year thinking, if you had to put money on it one way or the other, Kevin Keats was more likely to be fired than be the ACC Coach of the Year. And the tables have turned on that dramatically. I think he's done a great job uh, with that team. He's got them playing really good basketball. I think Kevin Keats is, is a guy who, again, I, I agree with you that as of right now, it would be capable for me. Uh, but Kevin, Kevin Keats, I think, would be my second and, and then probably Jim Laranega um, in the third spot. I, it, it's a great debate, and, it, and as it often is, Trying to narrow first team all league down to five guys is going to be a total chore. You're going to feel awful about leaving two or three dudes off the squad. And who's defensive? I mean, I think Reese Beekman, if 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 only because of that play Saturday, you know, he he's he's my defensive player of the year. But people who cover Carolina on a regular basis, Leaky Black. And the times I've seen him, he's beyond exceptional defensively as well. And very similar to Beekman, you know, long and gets in his stance and just makes your life miserable. Yeah. My only 
concern. Let's not have it just be who leads the league in blocked shots because sometimes no. it feels like defensive player that you're balloting can go that way. Um, but to me, yeah, uh, Beekman and, and Black are uh, one and one A there. Um, you know, just outstanding. And Ju- Judah Mintz is um, an outstanding defensive player too, more for his athleticism and anticipation, where as Beekman um, certainly has that. But Beekman, to me, what he's added this year is a physicality to his game. Mm-hmm. It's something I'm going to be writing about, I think, later this week. But um, you see it on the offensive end with the way he can finish through contact. You see it on the defensive end in terms of just a willingness to put his body on a guy and then get those quick hands down. And um, to me, he's such a complete player. And I, I think he's the most, one of the most underrated players in the ACC, you know, because there are games where he scores, what did, what did he score Saturday? Six points? Uh, but I think he scored four. Give me the rest of his line. Yeah, he was two for 11 from the floor. So, you know, what a, what a miserable game, right? right. Uh, not so much. Seven assists, no turnovers, mm-hmm. six rebounds. Three steals, oh, in the aforementioned block shot. Yeah, I, I mean, I just, I don't think if you, if you, unless you watch Virginia day in, day out, uh, if you're on the Virginia beat, uh, otherwise, why are you doing that? I don't think you appreciate how much Reese Beekman gives this team every time. Now, he, he leads the ACC in assist-to-turnover ratio, so that's a pretty good sense of, of where he's at. Kihei Clark, his teammate, is actually number two. Uh, and he's certainly, you know, up there, going to be up there in steals, going to be up there uh, in, in some of those statistics. But uh, I, I just think that in all around game, it's kind of like we always praise Justin Mutz at Virginia Tech, right, for the passing. You know, the games where, okay, he only had eight points, maybe eight points and, and eight rebounds. But his passing can change a game. And uh, Beekman just impacts a game in so many different ways. Uh, I don't think that should be overlooked. Agreed. And and one thing I think we both have overlooked is, is we talked about Virginia Duke was Kihei Clark on the offensive end. Yeah. That crafty little sucker. I mean, I'll tell you what. He, he gets in that paint and his little up and unders and reverses – and, you know, John Shire made the remark in, in postgame, man, we gave up a lot of layups, to, to which I then asked him, yeah, and how crazy is it that the smallest guy on the court had most of those layups? He has such an uncanny sense of when he can get to the rim and when his team needs it, right? Like, yeah. he, he's not a, he is the opposite of a volume shooter. Right, he's the anti Caleb Love. He's he's not going to take he's not yes. going to take twenty four shots in a game. And I, I think people sometimes look at that and think maybe he doesn't have the the offensive talent to be that guy. I don't know. I'd be curious what an offense with Kihei Clark taking fifteen or twenty shots a game looks like. But I know that Virginia is much better with him picking his spots, picking his moments. And I don't know what the number is, but his success to failure ratio when he puts his head down and goes to the rim, it's pretty damn high. Right? He knows when to go. And that was a and that's a change, Mike, mm-hmm. from past years. I I his growth from fourth to fifth year on the offensive end, I think has been considerable. And and Tony Bennett was interesting. He didn't just say to Kihei Clark, sure, come on back. He wanted to know, and he needed he needed to believe Kihei Clark when Clark told him, yeah, I want to come back, but I want to come back because I want to get better. 
and I think I can get better, and I'm going to dedicate myself to getting better individually and therefore make the collective better. And that, I think, from a fifth-year guy, I think is exceptional, if not unusual. Yeah, no doubt. And, and, you know, we talk about it on the other side, and we've talked about it on the other side on this podcast. I'll say, you know, Caden Shedrick not playing any minutes and then being ready. But here's a guy who plays a ton of minutes, mm-hmm. right? And for the last four years, three years, has just been ridden in terms of playing minutes. Uh, and yet has that not just willingness to come back, but that drive to come Mm -hmm. back and to want to play those minutes and to want to improve in some ways and to want to uh, be in those pressure spots. And, uh, you know, I said it jokingly, but I'm serious when I say it's hard to imagine him losing on senior day two years in a row. Uh, It was hard to imagine it the first time. He just, he seems like one of those guys who in the big spots uh, finds a way to get it done. And and, and this Virginia team has needed that. And David looking ahead, I I think they certainly will need that, uh, down the line and, and we'll obviously have plenty of opportunities to talk about all of that thank you for listening you can subscribe to teal and barber on apple podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the times dispatch you can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com today's show was produced by dean hoffmeyer uh, and yours truly here teal and barber is a podcast of the richmond times dispatch and richmond.com for david teal I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. Stay away from officiating controversies. And please (laughs) join us again next week.